On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchondo. Well, hello and welcome everybody to Second Shot. Second Shot, this is another Second Shot Sit-Down. My name is Jenny Anchondo and today we're talking about addiction recovery. Uh, the, the kind of addiction that can tear a family apart and also the kind of recovery that can truly, truly bring people back together. My guest today is Dr. Rob Kelly from Rob Kelly Group. And oh my gosh, he has quite the story to tell, but I'll, I'll let him share that for himself. Good morning and welcome in, Rob. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm, Thanks for having me. I'm good. I have to be honest with everybody. We already did this interview once. It got deleted. So this is the second time around. So I do know a lot more about your story aside from even just the research. But sometimes I think that will make the second interview even better because I can really key in on, on some of the facts about your life that are really, really remarkable and also some that are a little bit more relatable to everybody. So let's start uh, back at the beginning. We know that you work obviously with your recovery group now, but let's start at the beginning um, where you found yourself in such a, a, a financially profound position, but also just in the throes of addiction. Talk about what life was like then. Life, life on the outside looked good. I've got to put that out there straight away. The big house looked great. The cars, the Porsches, the Bentleys looked fantastic. Uh, at one point of my career, the, my financial advisor told me I can't go broke. So with investments and everything else. So everything was covered up. But what wasn't showing and still doesn't show today, I guess, with everybody with addiction problems, is I was a chronic alcoholic who drinking every day, still didn't think I had a problem with it because, hey, look at the big house, look at the cars, look at the bank account, you know, the four or five foreign holidays every year. Uh, and slowly but surely, it, it started to take over my whole being. And, and it was- Go ahead, go ahead, finish that sentence. And just every day I was drunk. And what were you doing to earn a living at the time? This is the part, you guys, that's really remarkable. Uh, well, I, I, I changed jobs. First of all, I was uh, in telecoms. So I also, after I joined the police force, I, I came out and jo joined telecoms. So that, that was probably one of my biggest earners when I was there. But I was the kind of guy that always earned big money. I was always the kind of guy that would push himself to the limit. I mean, we started a company with absolutely nothing, probably 200 pounds in the bank and in the first year, maybe 18 months, you know, we were taking $1.2 million a year. So it kind of exploded really quickly for me. So I wasn't using the medical license uh, right at that moment. I was, I went in another direction because a couple of people fired me, you know, and, and the reason why they fired me is because they called me an alcoholic, which absolutely, I was aghast when they said that. I was like, I know what an alcoholic looks like. They're the guys on the corner with you know, big overcoat and string around the waist, drinking bottles of vodka. And I know what mental illness looked like because my mom was in a psych hospital. So that wasn't me. 
and, and that that sort of thought of mine kept from kept me for a, probably about another four years. What did you earn your doctorate in, or how how is it that we come to call you Doctor Rob Kelly? I've have a, uh, I'm a double PhD, so I have a a PhD in psychology. So I'm a psychologist by trade. I also have a PhD in behavioral science because I wanted to add that because eight years ago we started telehealth. So that was really good for me. So I went back to college and I did an online course over a four year period for a behavioral scientist uh, PhD so I can study people online. So you you got your degree in something that, that studies addiction, am I right? I mean, and then... Yes. And then you didn't end up using that, but you're working in, did you say like telecommunications? What did that look like in a practical sense? Uh, well, remember the, the towers that we build for, for telecoms, the mobile phones. Well, way before that, we were building them kind of masks that you see all over the countryside for the army and Navy. And we had an inkling that telecoms, the first stage of telecoms was being developed. So we were kind of doing the early to telephone towers mm. Uh, before the actual phones came out. So they were exciting times, but it was also a boom industry overnight. And we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And you started getting fired because people called you an alcoholic. And, and how long did it take for you to realize that that was true? So here's the crazy part. Not the marriage went, the kids, the terrible things in the house, uh, the loss of the kids, the loss of the wife, then the loss of the house, the cars, parents disowned me, brother and sister, and I went to the streets. And I lived on the streets, and I mean sleeping in bus shelters and searching for crumbs on the ground to eat. I was starving to death and abandoned. Only after 14 months on the streets did I realize I had an alcohol problem. How crazy is that? That is, well, you know, I, I mean, far be it for me to say, make any claims about crazy about anybody, but it does seem peculiar that you would have actually the, the collegiate knowledge to know what it looks like, and then also for everyone in your life to have told you. So what was it on month 14 that happened that made you realize that you needed help? Uh, well, I was walking down the back ends of Manchester, back in the UK, it was a cobbled street, middle of nowhere, and I dropped down to my hands and knees and I started to cry from my belly. By this time, I'd been beaten, I'd been battered, I was starving to death, so people would beat him up. I was always a big fighting guy, couldn't do that anymore. I dropped down to my hands and knees and I started to cry with an ache in my belly that I have never felt before. And I wasn't drinking because I lost my kids or my wife or my houses. Suddenly realized that I couldn't stop drinking. And, and that, was a, that was a huge moment for me. It was just like, I'm doomed. What you know? did you attribute it to before though? I just thought I was going through some bad luck and, and I needed alcohol to get me through the day because I'd kind of lost everything, you know? And then probably about seven months on the streets, I kind of got used to it. And it's like, this is my lot in life. That's just the way it is. This is how my life's supposed to end. After six suicide attempts and two that actually worked when they brought me back to life and I hated them guys for that for years, you know, I just thought that was it. I'm gonna die on the streets. I might as well drink myself to death. Uh, until that Monday morning came around 2.30 when I just, the whole body just gave up. Did you miss your, your wife and your kids? Uh, I didn't miss my wife so much, although maybe I should have done, but my children, oh my goodness. Every birthday, and especially at Christmas, I would try and get near the house, and, and one day I walked past the house, my old house with my wife, and there was another guy in there, and uh, my two daughters were having you know Christmas dinner, 
about 6 p.m. It was dark outside. It was snowing. And I looked in, and it absolutely broke my heart. What, yeah, what, because you realized that somebody else was sort of there in, in your life. So Yes, it was really weird looking through that window because they had my life. They had the house, they had uh, which was paid for. They had my car. They had everything that I had. And the last thing my daughter said to me when they took him off me because, you know, I was unfit father, is, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So, you know, and, and that's why I look back now and go, why couldn't I do it? Why, why did I sell my kids out for alcohol? Why did I give my life up for alcohol? Why, why did I do that? And what's the answer? So the answer is that, first of all, it's the only disease that tells you you haven't got it. It's full of lies. You know, and, and and the main thing is, is that I was working against my own brain. Mm. You know, that's why I went into studying the brain regarding alcohol, because I couldn't believe it. And people come to me today and go, why can't my husband stop drinking? We're taking the kids off him. And I go, sit down, let me explain what's going on here, because it's, an, it's one of the most misunderstood illnesses in the world. And it's definitely the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. You know, 10 DUIs do not make you an alcoholic. It's what happens when I put alcohol in my body doesn't happen to the guy who lives next door to me. He reacts different to it. Mm. I go insane when I take that first drink and I can't stop drinking until, and the, this was the last eight months of my drinking, uh, until I end up in jail or I'm strapped to a psych ward bed. And that's it. There's no other way out. So you were in and out of both of those places? All the time, all the time. Every time I drank, which is daily, I woke up in jail or strapped to a bed. How and did, uh, never knew how I got there. How did you support yourself during that time after you lost your job and, and family? When I went to the streets, I, I beat people up for money. I robbed people. I would threaten people. I would go into uh, liquor stores and, and stores and just grab two bottles of vodka and make it quite obvious that if you come near me, I would hit you with one of them just so I could have the other. I mean, it was real hardcore. Wow. You know, it was it was probably the worst movie you've ever seen, guys, on TV of desperate people living on the streets times 10. Wow. That's how bad it was. I remember following a guy out, out of a burger place once and he said to his wife, I don't think I can finish this whole burger. So I followed that guy around for about 15 minutes until he dumped the rest of the half of the burger, half eaten, into a trash can. I went into that trash can and I took all the ash off it and scrubbed all the dirt off it and I ate that hamburger. That's how desperate he was for me. And it wasn't until you just kind of realized it yourself. So we're going to get, I, how, how old were you at that time? And how old are you now? Uh, I was about 24, 25, maybe 26. And I'm 59 now. So there's a lot, obviously, between 20s and 50s that has happened. And we're going to get to that. But I also want to go back to hear a little bit about your childhood. Everybody who's listening and watching can hear your, your wonderful accent. And um, so talk about, you know, your childhood and, and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in Manchester. Everyone knows that for Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, exactly. United. Right, exactly. Everybody says that, Manchester United. But which I actually worked for. I was a doctor for Manchester United for a few years later on in life. But uh, I, I was uh, from a musical family. So I played on stage from the age of eight or nine with my auntie and uncle in bars and clubs. And, put, and I started earning a lot of money. Uh, and I took my first drink at nine years old. And I often look back because when I took that drink, and here's the sign for anybody who's unsure. The whole world lit up. And I asked my friends today, or the friends then, they go, when you took your first drink, how old did you go? Oh, 10 or 11. What was it like? Oh, my God, it was horrible. Oh. Not for me. 
It was phenomenal. It changed my whole life. In my teens, I could speak to women, you know, and I always took chances that other people wouldn't take, mostly because I was drunk. Ah, uh, and, and did anyone ever show concern growing up about that kind of behavior? No, my, my mom had a, my mom and dad, had, was, we were a poor family. There's no doubt about that. But my mom and dad had a bar in the house. So I used to go, we used to often, especially me and, and another friend of mine, we'd go to the, the whiskey and we'd pull it down off the shelf and we'd drink all the whiskey over a couple of days. Then we'd fill it full of cold tea. So that it looked amazing. It like looks if it had been touched. Uh, until my dad invited friends around and some, we was all sat around the table and someone said, do you want something to drink? And he said, yeah, I'll have a whiskey. And me and my friend looked at each other and I thought, oh, this is not going to go well. And of course, he got, a, he, got a, he got a black tea with ice, which he later spat out across the table uh, and we were busted. Wow. But you continued on. Would you say that when you got married, you were an alcoholic? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I was an alcoholic from when I was nine. Always. When okay. I look back now. But when I married my wife, I was drinking, obviously, a lot. But as the years went by, because married for about 10 years, I'm not sure how long. But uh, my drinking got more progressive. And Rob. that's what it is, a progressive illness. You're not sure. Look at all this shade he's throwing. <laughs> She's like, I'm not sure how long I was married to her, but I'm glad it's over. I know you're remarried now. We'll get we'll get to that too. Um, God bless her, by the way. God bless her. <laughs> it sounds like it was really something that you, but yet you continued to get your education. I think it's very difficult for people to understand how somebody who could be, I mean, I guess, is the word high functioning? Is that still what they call it? Yes, yes. Yeah, I uh, I barely got through college, I have to admit. I had a lot of friends who did a lot of work for me. I'm going to leave that there. Uh -huh. uh, so I graduated just, but uh, I was I was out of control. I mean, I, re I remember coming down one morning uh, from the bedroom about three o'clock in the morning, dying to drink. My head is banging. I'm looking around the kitchen. I find this half bottle of vodka, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is. I mean, I'm sure when I opened the cupboard, he went, oh, you know, it's just like I found this bottle at three o'clock in the morning, and I put it on the counter, and I turn round to get a crystal glass because I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not drinking out the bottle, uh. so I turn round to get this expensive crystal glass, and when I turned back, my wife had snatched it off the counter. And she says, Rob, I think you've had enough. Let's think about that for a second. This is my third bottle in 24 hours. I'm due to drive to work in three hours. What I should have said was, thank you, Mrs. Kelly, gone back to bed and slept another two hours. What this guy did was took a kitchen knife out and I stabbed her three times. That's where alcoholism took me. And that was before the streets. It got worse after that. Oh my gosh. Wow. And I fled to Spain then, by the way. I called the ambulance, I called the police, I heard for the sirens, I jumped in a taxi that was waiting for me, I got to the airport and I left for Spain, I had a place in Spain, and I stayed there for three months until she promised not to press charges. Because in England, you have to press charges. You can't, the police can't arrest you if there's no pressing charges, so after three months, she signed an affidavit to say she won't press charges, and I came home. And that's when all the bags were packed and, and left. That's, and that's when, and, and you, didn't see your, you didn't see your family again after that for how many years? I've never seen my youngest daughter uh, 30 years on and only two years ago my eldest daughter got in contact with me so there's a great story here real quick yeah so I my eldest this is story... the, let's let's get back onto the positive train of, of Rob's life because there, yes. there's really a redemption story here well from where I was to where I am now is, is almost impossible they call me one of the greatest minds in the modern addiction world so two years ago again every Christmas New Year's uh, my eldest daughter got in touch with me on Facebook Messenger 
He says, Dad, I want to see you. Well, of course, I was on the next plane over. And that's all she said. I want to see you. I don't believe the rumors. I saw you on TV. So we flew over there, me and my current wife. And we went around to the apartment. And she came out of the apartment. And we just hugged. I got, I got emotional. Mm-hmm. We just hugged and cried. Yeah. And, and the, all the thoughts of what a bad father you were, you know, nine hours on the, on the plane there thinking what a piece of crap I was. And I mean, I don't know whether I can ever mend this, but we, we, we cried and we, and we held each other. And then she took me inside, she said, Dad, I've got something to show you. And then she handed me my eight-month-old granddaughter. Oh. And it was right there and then I realized I'd made it. Wow. I, I mean, I've, I've made it. But the crazy thing is she wanted to go back to college, so I paid for her to go back to college. And as of Monday last week, she's now a counsellor, online counsellor with Rob Keller Recovery Group. <gasps> Oh, congratulations. Oh my gosh. Wow. So she has, um, I mean, that's, that's a lot of forgiveness because she grew up in large part without you. Yeah. I mean, from the age of three, um, you know, she, they were on their own and and mum wasn't great apparently, but God bless her as well. She did her best, but yeah, I mean, my daughter says she knows about alcoholism. She studied it. She, she forgives me, but you know, Jenny, they, I don't think that ever happens. There's still, I, I mean, we could be walking down the road, me and my wife, and I could see a child or something, and I could see the dad who's drunk, and I've got that Sunday, you know, a few hours with him, and you can see he's drunk, and I cringe. Oh. And I, I got all my daughter only a couple of weeks ago uh, online, and we, and we sat down, and I just poured my heart out of all the things that I did because most of them she didn't know. And I, I said to her, I don't get emotional again, I said to her, yeah this is what I have to carry around every day, you know, and I'm trying my best and it gets easier and easier, but you know, the damage I've done can, can never fully be repaired. I mean, she has to see a counselor. She suffers from PTSD from me being at home and the drinking and the violence. Mm -hmm. And, and I will never forgive myself for that. I can just be the best person Mm -hmm. I am today and and just be there for her. I mean, we spent one night all night, 12 hours speaking on the phone Mm -hmm. when the COVID started because she was scared and when I put the phone down, it's like, I get to do that today. Right. It was such an amazing feeling. Because for so long you had lost touch and you really didn't know what had become of, of your family, right? I mean, yeah, and, and I, you, I often try to guess. And it sounds like you tried to reach out from time to time and understandably they weren't willing initially. No, my, they wouldn't uh, reply to emails, to letters. Mum would always guard them with letters and not let them see them. But there's a couple of things that happened here. First of all, uh, when it was ready, it was phenomenal. So, you know, I, I, but my youngest daughter, uh, my eldest daughter said that, she said, hey, I've, I've seen dad. And this was two years ago, just under. And my youngest daughter says, I don't have a dad. Mm. And, and that really, really crucified me. But uh, when, when, when we got in touch, my mom died a few years ago, but just before she did, um, I'd sent all the letters to my mom and the Christmas cards and the birthday cards for the last 20 years. So when we first got in touch, I told her to go around to mom's and look in the bottom drawer and she opened the bottom drawer and there's all my letters for the last 20 years. Oh, wow. That my ex-wife wouldn't let us see, but my mom kept them. Yeah. And uh, so she knows now that I was always thinking about it and I never really went anywhere. I was just too sick to do what I'm supposed to do. And, and then she realizes that, and that's why I'm so aggressive for what I do today. Is like, I don't want other families to go through what I went through. 
Let's talk about what did work for you. There was a clear transition point, a clear rock bottom. What did work and was it a, you stop drinking and never drink again, or was it a weaning off? Uh, for me, I had a, what's called a spiritual awakening, very, very big on the streets that morning when I jumped down. I just looked up to the sky and I don't know why, because I was an atheist and I just said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And he seen my life got 30 seconds later, a guy walked around the corner with a little Bible in his hand and said, hey, do you want help? And I told him I was an alcoholic and I was dying. And he said, well, he used to be on the streets, but he has an apartment. And he took me around to the apartment, we got changed, got showered, he fed me. And he took me to a couple of 12 step meetings where I found a guy who took me through the, the 12 steps and that with education and loving myself today, because that was also a big one. Uh -huh. You know, I've managed to continue. There were, there were a few relapses because sometimes I get complacent and don't do what I'm supposed to do, uh, which is my little training in the morning and nighttime, 10 minutes either way. doesn't seem a lot, but it is. But today, I live a life beyond my wildest dreams. I mean, I, from homelessness to a million-dollar house, from homelessness to driving the cars I want. I mean, I don't care if this all went tomorrow, to be honest. Just leave me with my eldest child, my wife, and my dogs. And I'll tell you something else as well, and somebody out there might relate to this, is you can take all this away. You can take my millions of dollars away, my houses and every, you can take it all. Just give me three days with my youngest daughter. Mm, yeah. Do you think that she will ever come around? Well, I'm a true believer that if you're doing the right thing, the right things happen. You see, I don't do this for the money. I could have retired years ago. I do this to help people. I do this to bear witness to those who are still suffering. I work with people today with alcohol problems, but we have to include the family. So I'm thinking if there is a God up there or spirit of the universe or Buddha or anything, it's going to see all the work I'm doing. It's going to make that happen. Well, I'm going to tell you, I believe there is. Are you, you had the spiritual awakening. You were an atheist at the time. Are you, do you still consider yourself to be an atheist? No, the, the moment that happened, and a, and a thousand other things have happened since, yeah. like, you know, f before I was supposed to come over here, my passport was expired, and, you know, it, you know, I couldn't come, and then two days later, the postman knocked on the door. I mean, loads of stuff have happened. I'm a big spiritual guy. I, I have somebody up there that I call God who looks after me like I've never known anybody. I see miracles on a daily basis with the stuff I do today. So what you do is totally virtual. You were doing this before the pandemic. You were working with people aside, aside from some if some uh, isolated cases where you will make visits and you will make in-person connections. But by and large, a lot of this is virtual. And to me, this seems like a really beautiful thing for the person who is that high functioning <clears throat> addict who is still very much working to support their family, taking their kids, yes. et cetera. And so how does it work when they work with you? It's almost like it sounds like an intensive outpatient program virtually is that right it is yeah i mean we we used to have huge offices in uh, highland park in dallas but uh, what we do now and the reason why we did it is because when people come into an office they're very sterile they've had a shower they put the best clothes on they've got a front on it's hard to break that front for for many weeks if not months we find that when somebody's sat in their own house with a nice shirt on and the pajama bottoms on the slippers <laughs> i can get to them within minutes you know, because they're relaxed. So we have a 90 day program, uh, which is one hour a day, every single day for 
and you spend five days with me and two days with my psychotherapist. And we basically go back to the scene of the crime, uh, childhood trauma, she clears out, and I, using your linguistic programming, change the thinking. Because it's not the drinking, it's the thinking. Uh-huh. This is what people don't understand. And they also don't understand how powerful the brain is. So the, the drinking, when you come to us, is a given. We'll give you money back if we don't do that. How can we put that family together? How can we improve that lifestyle? How can you get that job, that girl, that car, that house? That's what we're gonna build up because there's no point in getting well just to be the same old person who you was before because the same man with no change will, will drink again. And we want to stop that. Rob, you love those cars and houses. Last time we talked, he was talking, he, he, I could tell. You say take away the cars and houses, but he is. He, li- he likes his, his fun, fancy stuff, which I'm totally okay with. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear what is, to, to you, you know, in, in your experience, how long have you been doing this at Rob Kelly Recovery Group and also just in terms of helping others to fight addiction? Uh, 29 years in total with, with everything. That's just little things. Yeah. But uh, 11 years over here, as in huge. You know, everyone knows who we are. We, we, we work with a lot of high-profile people. And the way we do it is we only take on four patients at any one time. So we will take three people on, high-profile people, and then we'll pick somebody uh, who needs help who can't afford to pay. What, so we kind of balance to both. What is the key to long-term recovery change of mind which is neural pathway change from self-sabotaging which is the alcoholic drug addict or bipolar whatever else it is self-sabotaging neural pathways let's change them into good healthy neural pathways and the way we do that is quite simple is this is my self-sabotaging neural pathway i'm born with this it's always going to let me down we are building new neural pathways off this and basically what happens over a period of time, this being self-sabotage, is we change it to this. Uh-huh. So it's always there, but this is the main knee-jerk reaction of, of self-care, self-love, and helping other people, uh, f- well, no matter how it is. Because when I say thank you to somebody, uh, my dopamine starts being released in my brain, and people don't know this. It's a good feeling. I like to feel good today. So I always compliment three people. I always do my work, which is my mirror work, stood in front of the mirror every morning, tell myself I love myself 10 times, not for me, for my subconscious brain, because that's where the disease lies, near the hypothalamus. We need to change that, and we need to get up every morning and go, how can I serve somebody today, and how can I have the best day possible? So it's interesting when you, when I, what I take away from that, the key to long-term recovery, loving yourself, but also getting outside of yourself and doing something that's not wholly focused on you. Correct. Once you get outside yourself and start helping others, it will boost your neural pathway change to never, ever look at alcohol in the same way again. And the compulsion will be removed so that we can get on with life. And people say to me every day, how come you're happy every day? You've got to know my past to realize, A, I got out of a dry bed this morning. In fact, I got out of a bed this morning. Yeah. You know, I, I help people. I have, I have contact with my sister, you know, my dad, my, my eldest uh, daughter. All these things are happening. So once you've been down there and, and you come up again, you don't take life for granted. And, hey, I get two lives in one lifetime. Is it, it's true, I mean, it's a true classic example of a second shot that you took and, and took advantage of. Do you think that people um, need to continue? You mentioned 12-step recovery worked for you, and I know you, when people come into your 90 days, eventually they're, they're done with you. What, what is, do you think people should still go to 12-step meetings? Do you think that they, in addition to doing the loving yourself in the mirror and that sort of thing? 
Yeah, there's a couple of things. First of all, 12-step, uh, you know, in certain rooms, they're unbelievable. It works 100%. And secondly, when you finish with after 90 days, you get 30 minutes for the rest of your life um, once a month free of charge with me. So we're always checking in with you. But, yeah, grab anything you think works for you. You know, if it's if it's a Bible, grab it. If it's a big book, grab it. If it's a self-help book, grab it. You know, and don't be afraid to water ski, to, to go jump in, to skydive, just to do these things that you've never done before because your disease has held you back. Because that's what I do. I live out loud. Everyone knows who I am. I'm nearly 60. I dye my hair blonde. I wear <laughs> crazy colored clothes with stupid colored kids' uh, sneakers. <laughs> As you know, I drive an extortion crazy car. It's like live life, guys, because you know something? Last night I went to bed, I was 29. I woke up today, I'm 59. That's how quick it goes. Yeah. You can't waste your time. And if you if you don't think you can achieve something wrong, you can call me up, search me. I'll give you 15 minutes free of charge talk that will change your life because you don't realize how good you are, guys. You don't realize. And that's the key to life. Oh, Dr. Rob uh, Kelly, we have been on such a journey. I, I just, I, I thoroughly enjoy the depth of your story and the redemption and the, the fact that you are reconnected with your daughter. And I do hope and pray that you will be reconnected with your youngest at, at, at some point, whatever is comfortable for her. Um, please give everybody your information, the website, how to find you, all the goods so that they can connect with you if they are looking for something like this. Okay, so uh, Dr. Rob Kelly on any uh, Google or anything like that, just search for me, you'll find me. If you want to visit the website, it's just robkelly.com with two Bs. See it there on my shirt, robkelly.com. And listen, guys, also there's a book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. Go to there on Amazon. Uh, if you haven't got a lot of money, download it free of charge by electronics. If you have, it's $10. All proceeds, not the profits, all proceeds go back into Texas. Go back into helping other people. $250,000 we spent last year helping other people in recovery with children. And here's something else. You know, I mentioned before uh -huh. that if you're feeling down or you're feeling as if you want help or you're feeling as if you've got nowhere to turn, a 15-minute pet talk. Let me give you my cell phone number, guys. I've done this loads of times. 214-600-0210. Doesn't go to my assistant. Don't go to my staff. Come straight to me. If you need that 15-minute pet talk, call me up. It's not about the money. Oh. It's about getting you on track. And I'll do that for you. No problems at all. Dr. Kelly, thank you. That was a bold move. He was. <laughs> he's sharing his number, everybody, but he's living life big. And thank you for being so generous with um, sharing so much of yourself with the rest of us. And you guys check out his resources. You know, he's, um, gosh, been all over the country sharing his story. And we are grateful to have had Dr. Rob Kelly on Second Shot. Oh man, big deep breath after so much emotional content. I hope this has been helpful for you. If you think that there is anybody who could benefit from this, please do share it with them. And if you need someone uh, or have somebody who you think should share their story of Second Shot, email us secondshotcast at gmail.com. We love those ratings, we love those reviews, and we love you just sharing this if you think it could help anybody else. We'll talk to you soon.